0: This is The Guardian. Today, China ends virtually all COVID restrictions. How its gigantic COVID wave will be felt around the world. For the past three years, we've heard a lot that COVID-19 has spread around the world, leaving virtually no family or community unscathed. But that isn't really true. For one-fifth of humanity, China's population of 1.4 billion people, the virus has been held at bay by the harshest COVID restrictions in the world.
1: Zero COVID means lockdowns. It means mass testing. And it means anyone who tests positive going to a government-run quarantine centre. Also in Shanghai, we've seen officials in hazmat suits disinfecting the streets and fences to stop people leaving their flats.
0: Now, all of a sudden, most of those restrictions are gone. And in the cruel way that's become so familiar to the rest of us, COVID-19 is smashing through Chinese cities and towns. One doctor quoted
1: by state media calls this a pandemic tsunami.
0: on sheer numbers and the speed with which it's spreading. This might be the biggest COVID wave in any country so far. With Lunar New Year celebrations starting this weekend, the peak of the virus might still be to come, and the rest of us won't be immune to the consequences. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, the cost of ending COVID zero in China. Tanya Brannigan, you're a Guardian writer who focuses on China. And last time we spoke to you about six weeks ago, China had just witnessed its largest scale nationwide protests since Tiananmen Square. After
1: three years of mass lockdowns and constant testing, frustrated citizens took to the streets in widespread demonstrations, which the country had not seen in decades.
0: People were just sick of COVID zero policies. Desperate to get back to normal after three long and difficult years, and the very next day, the 1st of December, China's Vice Premier Sun Chunlan made a surprising announcement, one that now looks like it was signalling the beginning of the end of COVID zero. Tell me about what she said.
1: So, yes, she came out and said that the battle against COVID was really entering a new stage and mission. And it obviously had come among a lot of speculation about whether there would be an attempt to sustain the zero Covid policy, which clearly was looking increasingly unsustainable. And it was justified with an argument that there was an increasing vaccination rate, that Omicron just wasn't as dangerous and that they knew much more about outbreak control and prevention. Having presented the Chinese population for so long with this terrible, deadly threat from outside that had to be kept out at all costs, suddenly it was saying, you know, don't panic over Omicron. It's fine. People get it. It's not a big deal people were really left almost with whiplash, I think, at the change of direction. I mean, there was a joke that was doing the rounds. The Chinese authorities saying, well, we're going to lift the restrictions and we're going to get rid of zero COVID in 10. Uh, and people saying, well, what do you mean, sort of 10 weeks or 10 days? And the Chinese authorities say Nine, eight, <laughs> seven, six."
0: So that is a pretty sudden shift, one that you say leaves a lot of China's vast population with this feeling of whiplash. And just so we understand the stakes here, the Chinese government must have known this was going to have a pretty severe impact on the population. How prepared were they? How much were they able to brace the country for what was coming?
1: It really doesn't feel as if the country was prepared at all. And so I think even at the time, the sense of liberation perhaps was accompanied by this sense of sort of deep foreboding and particularly concern for sort of older relatives. Many people, of course, were under-vaccinated, particularly elderly people. We know that China has fewer ICU beds than you would see in the developed world, for example. So there was a lot of anxiety about how people would manage to deal with this and really where the services could hold up.
0: Despite those concerns, over the past few weeks, we've started to see COVID zero begin to be dismantled. First, in major cities where you suddenly didn't need a COVID test anymore to ride public transport or go to bars and restaurants...
1: This decision was met with relief and concern from those awaiting
0: a shift in policies. And then a few weeks later, when people with COVID were allowed to start isolating at home instead of going to some kind of government facility, And then by early this month, travellers to China no longer needed to quarantine or even have negative tests to enter the country.
1: There have been hugs and tears as international travellers arrived in China yesterday without the need to quarantine for the first time.
0: COVID is for all intents and purposes being allowed to run free. So what does that look like?
1: There's no doubt that COVID has been tearing through the mainland at extraordinary speed and with extraordinary impact. So the authorities have been very limited in what they've been saying, really, in terms of the messages coming from the centre. But actually, health officials have been allowed to put more out. There were also leaked documents that suggested that even by the 20th of December, I think, there'd been around 250 million cases. The fact that that came so early in December really suggests that part of the reason they dropped the zero COVID policy was simply the fact that COVID was already spreading faster than they could manage. But the situation's clearly been exacerbated by axing zero COVID and just dropping all the restrictions. So there's no doubt that it's been spreading at huge speed. We've seen big queues outside fever hospitals. We've seen people lying in hallways, in lobbies, even on lawn chairs. There just isn't enough room. People desperate to get even things like aspirin, uh, paracetamol, so forth, because demand's just been so high. Doctors overloaded, infected staff forced to keep working, and patients struggling to access the short supply of drugs. Anecdotally, we've been hearing about it sweeping through workplaces. Somebody was saying, you know, there were 50% of my office was off one day and the next day it was 90% who had COVID. We've heard in one of the provinces, there's now an estimate from health officials that I think around nine out of 10 people in the province have had it.
0: And Tanya, as the virus does tear through Chinese cities and towns, do we have any idea of what kind of toll it's taking, anything approaching a credible death toll?
1: Well, until this weekend, the Chinese authorities had been saying that 37 people had died on the mainland. Now, to put that into perspective, someone was saying on Twitter that if that figure was accurate, then his extended family alone accounted for 5% of all deaths. It clearly wasn't remotely feasible. And so this weekend, they suddenly came out and said, actually, we've had 60,000 deaths. One would love to think it was that low, but I think most people think there is still a big gulf between that figure and what many health experts were predicting, which was perhaps deaths in the hundreds of thousands. We've been hearing anecdotally people saying, well, my relative died, they tested positive for Covid, but that wasn't down on the death certificate. It is worth bearing in mind that obviously people in China are vaccinated. They are under-vaccinated in a sense, both because take-up of vaccines hasn't been as good as people hoped, and also because the quality of the Chinese vaccines, while they do offer protection, it's not as good as the protection offered by some of the vaccines available elsewhere. I think really global health experts are now saying it's great that China has now come out with a more plausible figure for deaths, but we need much more information. And one of the striking things as well is simply if you look at China now, COVID is not leading Chinese websites. It's not the main story. 60,000 deaths is not the top headline. They have reported it, but it's way, way down the news agenda as far as the authorities are concerned.
0: And if the Chinese government's figures can't be trusted, if even this 60,000 figure is thought to be an underestimate. What are we seeing and hearing out of China that gives us a sense of what the real toll might be?
1: Well, we're seeing this immense traffic at crematoria, for example. We're hearing these extraordinary stories. There are now scalpers, much as people would stand in a queue for sort of gig tickets or something and then try to flip them. People are standing apparently in queues for crematoria to secure a place and then selling that space on because demand is so high. Families wait and stand in their mourning clothes at this Wuhan funeral home with no idea how long they have to wait before their beloved ones can be cremated. We are seeing people talking about losing parents and loved ones who they know have had COVID, who've tested positive, and yet they're being told that they died due to underlying illness or some other cause. There is this clear gulf between what the authorities are saying and the reality that people can see in front of their eyes.
0: What kind of spillover impact is this wave of sickness and death having on Chinese schools, officers, just people's ability to live their lives?
1: One of the interesting things, actually, is it seems to have spread with such speed and such explosive force that, in fact, we're now seeing life in cities, perhaps returning a little bit more to normal. So even at New Year, we saw people out at parties uh, in Beijing. We've seen these districts which were deserted two, three weeks ago, suddenly filling up with shoppers and business people again. But one of the real questions is what's happening in the countryside. And that's, in a way, always been where some of the biggest concern has been, because you have a situation where healthcare is much worse. And at the same time, we have much less visibility. There is a sense of really the battle perhaps being at its height in those places. Doctors, hospitals, talking about being almost sort of besieged by patients. Stocks of medicines running low. It had a massively disruptive impact on the cities. That, as I said, now seems to be ebbing. But if anything, the impact may really be building in the countryside.
0: Hmm. Do we have any sense of how long this virus will have China in its grip, how long the acute phase of, of their COVID pandemic, now that it's in full flight, will actually go.
1: Well, Peking University has suggested that this wave could last around three months. I mean, one of the big concerns has, of course, been about the upcoming Lunar New Year.
0: China on Saturday marked the first day of Chun Yun, the 40-day period of Lunar New Year travel The first since 2020 without domestic travel restrictions.
1: What you always see is this extraordinary migration of people pouring out of the cities and going home to see their families.
0: More than 2 billion passengers are expected to take trips over the next 40 days, according to China's Ministry of Transportation.
1: The concern was always that they would seed disease where there really just wasn't the degree of vaccine coverage in some cases, but also where there really isn't the kind of healthcare available to deal with a wave of infections. Interestingly, I mean, we've actually sort of seen a top health official saying, don't go and visit your elderly relatives in this new year. But of course, because the government is also trying to play down the devastation caused by COVID, it's not hammering home that message in the way that you would think might be needed. And of course, it's devastating for many people because Chinese New Year is the most important holiday of the year. For many migrant workers, it may be the first time for years that they've had a chance to see parents or children or even spouses to suddenly sort of have that prospect taken away from them. And of course many people elsewhere will sort of remember going through this with Christmases and so forth to sort of think, I can go and see the person I love I haven't seen for a very long time but I might actually be killing them is a very distressing and worrying prospect, clearly.
0: Yet, one of the reasons this outbreak is causing so much concern around the world is that COVID suddenly has 1.4 billion new people it can potentially infect and with it more than a billion opportunities to possibly mutate into some more dangerous form. But is that a, a real risk? Is it something we should be really worried about?
1: The concern of most health experts is about the risk of new variants not being identified and reported. And that's really because the Chinese authorities have just been so opaque when it really comes to every aspect of this. So there's real concern that we simply wouldn't find out if there was a risky new variant. But I think the concern alongside that is that we've often seen when variants emerge in countries outside the West or when there seem to be a risk of variants that we've seen a lot of sort of prejudice and stereotyping going alongside that. There's a high level of COVID in many places, and it doesn't make much sense to try and impose restrictions on Chinese travellers at all.
0: So it sounds like there's no greater risk inherently of a dangerous variant emerging from China. The risk is that if a variant was to emerge, we may not hear about it from Chinese authorities. Given all of that, how have governments responded to China's outbreak?
1: Many places have asked Chinese travellers to test and to have a negative test before they board a flight. Now, as I said, it's not really clear how much that helps. I think the more sort of useful measures, people would say, have been the sampling of passengers coming off planes, so you have some sort of idea of what variants they have, and also sampling of wastewater uh, off planes. We do know that when it comes to the Chinese or Asian populations in particular, that there has been a huge upsurge in bigotry and outright violence caused by the pandemic.
0: Police in London say the number of hate crimes against people of East Asian descent has tripled since the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic.
1: One old white lady, she using her finger points on me and screams on me saying, you're Chinese, Uh, you are the Chinese virus, just go back your country. So it does seem immensely important that we don't, however unintentionally, spread this perception that Chinese people are somehow more of a threat to public health. For places which already have a high level of sort of Covid circulating in the population and are not doing anything to stop that, to then insist that Chinese people are tested for Covid before they arrive not to identify a variant, but simply to say, do you have any COVID or not, seems frankly pointless.
0: One impact that we may feel from China's wave is an economic one. China experienced a sharp decline in growth last year, down from 8.1% to 3.2%. Do we expect that as it adjusts to this first and what we expect to be future waves of the virus throughout this year, that economic growth will decline again?
1: Yes, and I think this is one of the problems for China. There's no doubt that it's very, very harsh. Zero Covid measures hit the economy really badly. And this, we suspect, is one of the main reasons why there was this sudden U-turn. But of course, as you say, when you have a huge wave of Covid like this, that in itself then hits the economy. We saw the IMF predicting that this year China would come in at or below global growth rates. And to put that in perspective, that's the first time that's happened for something like four decades. China has been the engine of global growth for so long and has taken immense pride in that. It's now in a very, very different position. COVID's certainly not the only reason for that. There are obviously problems inherent within the Chinese economy around things like the property market that people were looking at already. But there's no doubt that Covid has had a really deleterious effect and will continue to do so.
0: And in the rest of the world, how are we likely to to feel that as China's economy continues to sputter?
1: Well, I think that will be felt elsewhere. And of course, it's come at a time of such difficulties in the global economy anyway. I suppose one would also say that because of the effects of the zero COVID policies, we have also seen, for example, manufacturers start to shift some of their production Elsewhere, Firms moving outside also because of things like the um, clampdown on Hong Kong's autonomy and so forth. So there was a shift there anyway. This is not something that businesses were entirely unprepared for, but it's definitely not going to help.
0: Coming up, what does the end of COVID zero mean for the man who made it his signature policy? The Chinese president, Xi Jinping. Last time we spoke, Tanya, you mentioned that part of the reason why China had stuck so closely to zero COVID was because it had become part of the way that Xi Jinping justified his own rule. I mean, he said that the fact that China had been able to keep the virus at bay was proof of the superiority of the Chinese system. In the life and death battle against a serious epidemic, the Chinese people and the Chinese nation have demonstrated the fearless spirit of having the courage to fight and the mettle to win and have forged the great anti-epidemic spirit of putting lives above anything else. Now that they've performed this complete U-turn in COVID policy and it's really hurting people in the country, what do you think this all means for Xi Jinping and his rule?
1: I think it is an incredibly tricky time. It was used so much to justify the party stance. There was a sense of triumphalism in a lot of the party's pronouncements. And many people in China actually sort of agreed with that. And you can entirely see why, you know, for a lot of people, they were living quite normal lives for a long time. I mean, yes, it's a message that was being spread by propaganda, but it's also true that China did for years avoid the kind of deaths that were seen elsewhere. So then to have that so suddenly flipped and be told, well, actually, this is not something to worry about at all. It's just like getting a cold. I mean, people in China are used to the narrative changing, but I don't think they're used to it changing quite so fast. And being asked to not see what is right in front of them at the moment is also making people think, well, what the hell was that for? Why did we go through all that? I'm sure there are people who still think that the government is doing a good job, but I would say there has been a clear shift, a lack of trust, an anger, a real sort of bitterness and suspicion. And I think because for the party, you know, it doesn't have a democratic mandate, obviously, so much of its authority has rested really on what people call performance legitimacy. And for many years, not not just in controlling COVID deaths, but more generally with things like providing public services or especially raising people's standards of living, it said, you know, look, we're doing a good job. We are delivering for the Chinese people. That performance legitimacy is exactly the thing that has been hit with a sledgehammer by the handling of all this.
0: Hmm. And so... Do you think the fact that they executed a complete turnaround in policy and so quickly and at great political risk is a sign of a party that feels like it's in control of the country and able to do what it needs to, or one that actually doesn't feel so secure at all and is sort of flapping in the winds a bit?
1: That's a really good question. I think you have a party that is always very jealous of its status. It survives in part by being rather paranoid about any potential threats. We've seen in recent years a much more confident tone, particularly when dealing with the rest of the world. But I think At home, it's this combination of believing that they can and must be in charge, but at the same time being extremely alert to any threats. And so if we think about the protests that took place against Zero Covid... (laughs) (laughs) These were really important protests, the most significant for a very long time. But they were also relatively small. I mean, we're talking a few thousand people, and yet... Many of those protesters are still locked up now.
0: Well, those protesters did play a role in shifting China's COVID policy, for better or worse. And Tanya, it sounds like for the next few months at least, this enormous human tragedy, one that we've seen repeat itself over and over again in other countries, is going to just run its course at an enormous human cost.
1: I think in many ways, one of the most sort of devastating things to realise is that we won't see or hear about many of the very personal tragedies that happen. We'll be seeing families left without healthcare, losing family members unnecessarily. And we simply won't know because these will be happening in small rural villages. We'll never get to hear those stories. But the impact on families will be felt for so long.
0: Tanya, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Tanya Brannigan, a Guardian journalist. You can follow our coverage of China's COVID outbreak at theguardian.com. Before we go, Tanya will join Jonathan Friedland for a Guardian Live online event on the 2nd of February. She'll be talking about her new book, Red Memory, which takes a look at Mao's cultural revolution and how it shapes China today. You can find out more at theguardian.com forward slash Guardian Live. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Ned Carter-Miles. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. And we'll be back tomorrow.